You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 28th of February 2024. Is foreign policy actually going to be an election issue in the US? Europe grasps for agreement about how to defend itself, and the drawbacks of living alongside an Air Force base turn out to be the obvious ones. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Elizabeth Braw and Vincent McAvenny will discuss the day's big stories and we'll delve into new findings by Pew about the increasingly mixed feelings held by the citizens of democracies about democracy. Stay tuned. All that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller. I'm joined today by Elizabeth Braw, Senior Fellow at the Atlantic Council and author of the upcoming title Goodbye Globalisation, and by Vincent McAvenny, journalist and Monocle Radio regular politics commentator. Hello to you both. Hello. Hello. Um, Elizabeth, you can go first because you are still in book flogging mode and as regular listeners will be aware here at The Daily, we not only allow but indeed encourage our guests to cane mercilessly whatever title they have on a bookshelf near you. Well, I hope you all have Goodbye Globalization on your bookshelf because it turned out to be an extremely timely topic as we're seeing every mm-hmm. day. Globalization is in trouble. And uh, um, I was, I think, lucky enough to, to spot that this would happen. So the, the book appeared just as, as it became obvious that globalization was the headed uh, downhill uh, irrevocably downhill and uh, I think it will also provide people with a bit of hope about what comes after globalization because actually it's going to be a lot better. We'll have regionalization for some time and then a better version of globalization. That title again, Goodbye Globalization by Elizabeth Braw. Uh, Vincent, meanwhile, while Elizabeth has been meticulously excogitating, diligently researched non-fiction <laughs> about the future of globalization, you, and this is not a euphemism, have been waxing your skis. Yes, that's right. I'm very excited to be going skiing uh, and actually going to do something for Monocle looking at how resorts are trying to adapt to less and less snow each year. When I went away last year... Well, hang on, you successfully pitched them on that? Yes. You've got Monocle to pay for your skiing. No, 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 not at all. You know, the, the, about, no, the budget, you know, uh, no, no, the budget no, doesn't extend to the, Vincent, the buns seriously, from the coffee shop anymore. No, I've just, I just heartiest, tacked it on. My heartiest congratulations. Game respect game. <laughs> Nicely done. Um, which, which, which resort are you going to? No, but to? on a serious point, I mean, last year, the first time ever I went skiing and just had pretty much rain the whole time, which I've never really experienced before. Uh, and it has a huge... You went the, water skiing instead, presumably. Essentially, essentially slush skiing for most of it. Uh, so I'm going to uh, French Alps, but... Um, you know, I remember vividly doing for my like French A level. This was sort of 2005. The unseen text, and it was a French newspaper article about how their ski resorts will be uh, unprofitable from about 2030 onwards because of climate change. And I thought, well, that's a bit of a short timeline. That surely can't be true. But it is increasingly looking like the reality uh, that Italy, Austria, and France are facing is that in a couple of years' time, they might not be able to sustain a season, uh, and particularly after the damage done by the pandemic, it mm-hmm. will have a huge impact in certain 
certain regions of Europe. And well, on top of that, if I may add, I think this raises questions about the future of winter sport altogether. Mm. And, and the Winter Olympics, if there is no snow, uh, is, is it even viable to have winter sports? Uh, I remember years ago, uh, a, a German uh, alpine skier raised this point. And as you say, Vincent, it seemed far away, the, 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 the prospect of, of the Alps and, and other mountains lacking snow. But here we are faster than expected. Mm. Well, we will pivot seamlessly, first of all, from uh, bare, dry ski slopes to the US presidential election. There is just not a link there. I was trying to find one. It'll come to me when I'm on my way home. But anyway, uh, we are starting in the United States, specifically in Michigan, where yesterday's presidential primaries failed to furnish an upset or indeed much of a contest. Former President Donald Trump won the Republican primary in a canter and current President Joe Biden likewise in the Democratic one. Although there was a wrinkle in the latter to the tune of a 13% vote for uncommitted. This was an organised protest against Biden's support for Israel in its present war against Hamas and it will have caused a few jitters among Democrats. Michigan is a key swing state this November and has a largish Arab American population. Biden won it by about 155,000 votes four years ago. Trump by roughly 10,000 votes four years before that. Um, Vincent, how nervous should Democrats be about this? I don't think they should be too nervous because the election is still uh, a sort of good nine months off. And I think Mm -hmm. if we look back at an instance that's slightly comparable, you know, that disastrous pullout of Afghanistan by Joe Biden Many people thought that that was it for his presidency in the sort of, you know, the sort of weeks after that, everyone thought, well, this is, you know, the midterms, he looks like he doesn't know what he's doing, like he's incompetent. Uh, And he overperformed in the midterms. Mm -hmm. And he stopped the Republicans from really taking control of Congress, even though they do have slightly more seats. They've not really been in control of the House of Representatives. They've had a lot of turmoil going on there. They kept the Senate. Uh, And Joe Biden, I think, is possibly banking on the fact that if he can get this, as he sort of mentioned last night in that uh, on earlier in the week in that ice cream shop, if he can get uh, a ceasefire locked in place from early March, it's potentially enough time, you know, given a lot of events can take place between now and November, but also you have a whole summer, you have uh, more exposure of what Trump is like. Uh, and I had to, for the first time in a long time, sit and watch a full Trump speech, 90 minutes long on Saturday for work purposes to monitor it. It was the CPAC speech. Uh, And I really will not countenance any more weighted arguments that Joe Biden is on the decline. The speech that I saw on Saturday, and I've, you know, listened to Trump stuff off and on, listened to SOTS, you know, every week for the past nine years or so, probably now, this speech was all over the place. Uh, it, It was loosely held together of anything. It went off on tangents. At one time, at one point, he called his wife Melania Mercedes instead of Melania. I mean, the deterioration I saw in that speech (laughs) was pretty strong. And I think maybe Joe Biden thinks that, yes, obviously, as we're seeing here in the UK with the Labour Party, Muslim voters aren't that happy with the response of our two governments. But I think he thinks that if things calm down, in if they can get a lasting ceasefire, that will potentially help him in November. The only thing is, Benjamin Netanyahu might not want the ceasefire because he probably wants Trump in office instead, uh, and so isn't as inclined to help Joe Biden out. Uh, but uh, you're quite right to point out, Vincent, that eight months or whatever it is now is a long time in politics. But Elizabeth, is the worry here for the Democrats, though, is not that these disgruntled people will instead turn out and vote for longtime friend of the Palestinians, Donald Trump. The worry is that they just won't vote, isn't it? 
Exactly. And uh, one should remember that in the state like Michigan, it's very varied. So there are the Democratic pockets and Republican pockets. And I think uh, just to, to go back to the Republican primary in, uh, in Michigan, um, what is interesting there is that um, Michigan voters have traditionally been uh, a bit more independent. They haven't mm. been Trumpists. And now even the the most independent-minded parts of Michigan are fully in the Trump fold. Uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan, had the only freshman Republican congressman who voted to vote uh, against Trump in the uh, impeachment uh, proceedings. He was then obviously voted out of office because Trump ran a campaign against him. Uh, and, and now that was that was it in terms of, of uh, resistance to Trump. So that is quite interesting. But uh, when it comes to uh, to the Democratic primary, I think Biden can be, he doesn't have to be all that alarmed about the outcome. He won't see a 13 percent uh, campaign uh, or, or writing uh, campaign mm. against him anywhere else. And, and as Vincent said, he, he may be mentally a bit a bit fitter than we have uh, presumed until now. Um, what is the way forward, though, for any candidate running in an election anywhere in the world this year, Vincent, where this is a thing? And it is a thing in more places in the world than any other conflict is, even at the best of times. Now is obviously not the best of times. Is the smart thing for any candidate to do to say nothing uh, as far as that's possible? Because there is, and I suspect this is a cohort well represented among these people who voted uh, uncommitted, and this is not at all to suggest that the cause is not important and is not valid, but there is something about this particular cause which compels Mm. a certain cast of people to conform to that Churchillian definition of a fanatic, someone who can't change their mind and won't change the subject. Yeah, it's not to diminish in any way the fact that it is a very grave situation and it needs a proper response from the international community. But if you are a politician, so let's look at Sir Keir Starmer and Joe Biden uh, mm-hmm. running uh you know, both countries so far have been resistant to urge for a ceasefire. They now are definitely flipping the pages on that and putting the screws on Israel. Uh, but when it comes to it, uh, and we're getting a sort of foretaster of this in, in the UK here in by-elections as well, the Rochdale by-election, which is currently going on, many people in the town have said that they're fed up that the seems that the election, by-election campaign has been hijacked, they say, by the Israel-Gaza conflict. Uh, and when they point out all the problems going on in the town, uh, you know, they kind of say, why is this being, you know, brought to this little part of the, uh, you know, northwest of, of England, uh, when we've got so many other issues, they want to talk about those. Uh, there is a very loud majority that want to make about Israel Gaza. But even if they do make it a by-election on that with possibly the return of George Galloway, mm-hmm. who's a strong, uh, you know, um, supporter of Palestine, is it going to make any difference whatsoever? And I think for both leaders, what they need to do is, yes, say that they are taking it seriously and put the work in. But remember that Twitter and TikTok are not real life. Uh, And the vast majority of people uh, go to the polls on election days about domestic issues, not about foreign issues. You know, Tony Blair even still won significant majority two years after the Iraq invasion when things were going very wrong there because he played it on domestic issues and delivering on those. And I think if both leaders tack into that and say, this isn't a a general election about Gaza, this is a general election about you and the people at home, uh, then 
you know, and and both sides have the advantage that they are, you know, we're seeing the Conservative Party here in the UK tearing itself in knots over Lee Anderson and comments which were definitely anti-Muslim and probably Islamophobic, but they seem unwilling to say that, to countenance that. Uh, And so when you point out the alternative, both sides should naturally be able to win these people over by pointing out the alternative isn't going to be any better for people in Gaza. Uh, Just a final quick thought uh, on the United States before we move on, Elizabeth. Uh, Breaking news in the last hour or so is that Senator Mitch McConnell the long-serving Republican leader in the Senate from Kentucky, uh, who's actually even older than either Joe Biden or Donald Trump, uh, has announced he will be stepping down in November. Um, Does that potentially, assuming this is allied with a Donald Trump win, should that happen, this really does clear the way for the Republican Party to go full Yahoo, doesn't it? It does. So... uh Mitch McConnell has served in uh, in the Senate for a very long time. He is an, an arch-Republican, but he is a traditional Republican. He's not a Trumpist, and, and he, he has made certain concessions to Trump, but he has been the, the one senator who has been willing to consistently stand up to Trump, including on uh, aid to Ukraine. Mm. And uh, so with him retiring and Mitt Romney retiring, Mitt Romney, who has been uh, also somebody who has stood up to, to Trump, but obviously from a position of Less strength than, than uh, Mitch McConnell because he's just a senator, not not the majority leader. With the two of them leaving, that really clears the decks uh, for for Trump, and it's uh, it, it is um, a, a, a such a radical development the the uh, Republican Party has undergone in Congress, uh, especially in the Senate side, because there are just fewer senators than than, than members of of the House. But on uh, really in both houses, uh, Trump owns the party now, or will own it uh, after the election. Well, let's move along to a somewhat related subject. The two years since Russia commenced its current onslaught against Ukraine have prompted a general, if overdue, appreciation on the part of European governments that the continent is underdefended. The tricky bit is getting Europe to agree on what best to do about this. European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen, speaking today to the European Parliament, declared a need to, quote, turbocharge, unquote, European defence production and a desire to, as she put it, spend more spend better, spend European. Um, Elizabeth, these are nice ideas in theory, but what we run up against here, is it not, um, is the question of what is known as interoperability, the problem being that all the European countries, well, a lot of them have their own defence industries and their own militaries, and they guard those very jealously with the upshot that it's basically easier for everyone just to buy American stuff. It is indeed easier to buy American. And if you look, for example, at, at the German uh that special uh, defense package that was uh, that was passed um, a couple of years ago of 100 billion euros a large chunk of it has been spent on american equipment because the american equipment already exists you can buy it off the shelf as, mm-hmm. as it's called and uh, you don't have to wait for it to be to be manufactured and so the the the, the dirty little secret of german defense spending uh, is that uh, america has benefited greatly from it even though trump uh, keeps uh, assailing the Germans for not doing enough. Actually, they've done uh, a lot and it has benefited the American defence industry a lot. But then when it comes to the European defence industry, the, the, the challenge is, uh, as you say, Andrew, that, that different countries have different companies that they would like to support. And that's especially true of France. It likes to, to support uh, French defence manufacturers. Um, in theory, countries are supposed to put uh, their... Uh, 
acquisitions on tender. They are not supposed to just buy from their own companies, but but France often gets around that. Uh, so you have a lot of different companies. You have a lot of different models of, for example, tanks. And then you also have uh, each country has its own specifications of what it wants when it wants to buy uh, even the same tank as its neighbor. So it's very difficult for, for countries to even buy the same equipment together because if you are the Netherlands, you will buy, you will want a, a tank or whatever the equipment is that uh, is suitable for somewhat taller people. And if I'm, <laughs> say, uh, a country with somewhat shorter uh, average size, uh, average size population, then I will want my tank a little bit different. So all of those details make make it very hard to spend to to get results from defense spending and it's it is a little bit uh, i think a cop out for for Ursula von der Leyen to say well we should spend better and wiser well nobody would be opposed to spending better or wiser um, it is, Vincent, one of the last areas where even those European countries that have pooled a lot of their sovereignty uh, do still cling on to. No one wants entirely uh, to give up having their own military. There are pockets of uh, collaboration and cooperation, but nonetheless, it's still quite visceral. And ironically, perhaps, one idea that is being refloated is one of Theresa May's, uh, the how many prime ministers ago was she? Three now of the, of, of the United Kingdom. This was the idea of an EU-wide defence treaty and along similar lines, uh, Labour, who are expected to form the next government sometime within the next year here, uh, are floating the idea of a new EU-UK security pact. How would those be different to NATO, though? Well, I mean, that is a good question. And let's you have to extrapolate as well NATO as it currently stands or NATO with Donald Trump mm. in the White House and also Marine Le Pen in the Elysee Palace who says that she would pull France once again sort of back out of the command structure of NATO Donald Trump saying that he would leave us so you know this is a card that the Brexiteer wing of the Conservative Party have tried to play repeatedly over the last few years that uh, you know we can offer Europe some kind of security pact uh, as the sort of biggest army uh, in Europe we're a nuclear power as well although at the moment it doesn't seem our nuclear weapons are working too well given uh, recent tests um, but this is something that we could do but I think it would be very interesting for a British Prime Minister to try and negotiate this because you would then, I mean, if you were putting in some kind of NATO-esque article where if one's attacks all defend, if you were putting that in place for the EU, there would be a huge contingent in this country who would say, hold on, we left the EU mm-hmm. and they haven't been spending enough on their own defence spending. They could have got to that 2% threshold in recent years. They could have bought weapons from one of our companies, uh, but they haven't been doing that. So why should we now risk our own countrymen to go in and defend them? And, you know, that is still playing very much on the little Englander idea, the idea that the channel uh, is a moat and, and, you know, it's defended us for a thousand years and it will no matter what, which might now be a bit of a a fallacy. Um, So I can't see, you know, a a prime minister, unless there is a change of government with a Labour prime minister, uh, and this was a big card that they tried to make in a bit of a package where they could sell it as, well, if we're going to do this pact with the European Union or a group of European nations, uh, there will be sort of contingents that they need to, for interoperability purposes, buy weapons, buy tanks, buy planes from UK manufacturers. And that could be the way that they could sell it at home as well. But it is, you know, the the ultimately the thing comes down to is there's always the problem with the ideas of an EU army is, you know, 
who is commanding them? How can you have someone that's commanding the citizens of another country to potentially fight to their death? That is always where this idea has somewhat broken down. I, I think Elizabeth France would probably have fairly firm ideas on who should be in charge of the European army. And the annoying thing, especially since there is no longer the counterbalance of the UK in the EU, is that it's actually pretty hard to argue with France uh, if it thinks it should be the default uh, military powerhouse of, of the European Union. But if we look at another country, specifically Ursula von der Leyen's home country and where she was Minister of Defence, is Germany yet taking this seriously enough? Germany, for reasons we need not rehash, is still somewhat squeamish about the idea of being a great military power again. It might even be a bit worried that actually deep down where they live, some of its neighbours aren't terribly enthralled with the prospect either. But... Everybody needs to get over this, don't they? There is no reason at all why Germany, of all countries, should not be a serious military power. No, and and uh, the polls are among the countries that call are calling the loudest for Germany to to do more in defence, and I think that that uh, says uh, everything that needs to be said about mm. German defence. Uh, one of the problems, though, is that in Germany the defence minister post is not a particularly de- particularly desirable one. So you have people there who are not often not particularly interested in the job, which was the case uh, with the most recent defence minister who really sort of cabled uh, through every appearance that she wasn't particularly interested in the job. Now, uh, the current occupant, uh, Boris Pistorius, is interested in the job and he's actually also somebody who did military service uh, back as a, as a young man, whereas most politicians of his generation, uh, social democrats opted for uh, service in a hospital instead. So he's trying hard, but um, you have to change not just acquisition and not just uh, uh, the the technical things. You also have to change the culture within uh, the German military and indeed within within the wider uh, political debate in Germany. It's a a huge task and uh, he doesn't have a lot of time because the Bundeswehr is being called upon to, to, to do something now. Germany is being called upon to do something now. And he ha- he works for a boss, uh, Olaf Scholz, who is not too keen on Germany doing a lot. Elizabeth Braugh and Vincent McAvenny, thank you both for the moment. We will have more from you shortly. But now, in a year of elections, the fear in many nations is that their publics have lost faith in democracy and are increasingly turning to extremes and or authoritarian strongmen. A new survey of voters in 24 countries by the Washington, D.C.-based Pew Research Centre finds that most respondents are frustrated with their own leaders and institutions but grudgingly acknowledge that representative democracy is still just about the best form of government. Monocle's Chris Chermak spoke with Richard Wyke, Director of Global Attitudes Research at Pew. Chris began by asking Richard what surprised him most about the survey's findings. I think that one of the things that really stands out to me is how frustrated a lot of people around the world are with political elites and with their elected representatives. A lot of this report, I think, deals with the theme of representation. People say that they like representative democracy, they think it's a good way to govern their country, but they're very frustrated 
with how it's working. And, uh, you know, big majorities in, in most countries say that they don't think politicians care about people like them. A lot of people, especially those in the political center, feel like there's no political party that represents them. So, you know, representative democracy as an ideal is, is still very, very appealing to most people, but they've got problems with uh, how it's working. And they point the finger at political elites and political leaders in their countries for the problems that they see. It is very interesting, that dynamic that you described there, that so many people are dissatisfied with representative democracy. Politicians are out of touch. Political parties don't represent us anymore. And yet they all still say, or, or strong majorities over three quarters say, it is the best option. I mean, isn't that how a democracy, frankly, is supposed to work? There's something, you know, Churchillian about that. Right. There are probably some some inherent challenges in, in any democracy, right? They're going to cause frustrations for people. But, but you know, I, I do think you see people making some important criticisms here. You know, they, they, they as you said, they do value democracy. They haven't given up on it as, as, as necessarily the best system, you know, that, that's available. But they are frustrated with how it's operating and they feel like their leaders are out of, of touch with them. And, you know, they, they'd like to see, you know, a few things, right? They're including more diversity among their political leaders. And one of the things that we do in this report is we ask people about uh, whether they'd like to see different types of people elected to office. And, you know, we see, I think, in those findings that people would like to see some changes. Um, you know, they say, at least many people say, they'd like to see more women elected to political office, more young people, uh, more people from poor backgrounds. So, you know, part of the story here is about people wanting to see different kinds of leaders in political office. So different kind of leaders is one aspect. It was also interesting, I have to say, that there were two other forms of government that a majority did approve of, even if it wasn't quite as high as representative democracy. That was direct democracy on the one hand, so basically being involved, you know, as voters in many decisions, but also governing by experts, like a technocratic government. I mean, is that, are both of those, frankly, a sign that on the one hand, we approve of representative democracy, but we are also starting to look elsewhere. We're prepared for other options to try them. I think in some ways it, it does highlight the fact that you know people are frustrated with how representative democracy is working in some ways, right? You know, they they want more expertise in government. And uh, we, you know, as you said, in, in many places, you've got a majority saying that rule by experts actually might be a good way to govern. And that number's gone up over the last uh, few years. And then direct democracy is, is largely a popular way to govern as well. And, you know, I don't think that that means people necessarily thought through how direct democracy would work exactly. But I think that what it reflects is the fact that people want a stronger voice in governing, right? They, they say they're not listened to enough, so they want that more direct voice in making decisions. They want to be empowered. And I think that's part of the reason why you see pretty big numbers in many places saying, yeah, I think direct democracy would actually be a good approach to government. Well, absolutely. And when we do get to the, the sort of autocratic side of things, I mean, how worrying was that for you looking at the data? There is a rise in the willingness of people to have a strong or authoritarian leader, but it's still from a low base. Only about five countries actually favored the idea of a strong leader. That's right. Overall, you know, this 
notion of a, a strong leader who doesn't really have to bother with you know, parliaments or courts or you know other institutions of government is not popular. You know, right? It, it's not nearly as popular as representative democracy, but it it does have its supporters, which are you know a notable number of supporters in many countries and in a few places at least. It's increased support for that kind of government has increased since the last time we asked the question back in 2017. So, yeah, that is something to be concerned about, you know, when you see a rise in support for a more authoritarian approach to government, you know, again, I think what we see quite often is that it's, you know, the dissatisfaction with the way democracy is functioning that can open people up to these non-democratic approaches. So that essentially creates political space for would-be authoritarians to try to take advantage of. Dissatisfaction is one aspect, but I wonder if one other aspect of that is the leader who's like currently in charge. I mean, India stood out in this survey particularly because that is, you know, the world's largest democracy, and yet a majority of people in India currently favor a strong leader instead, which arguably they have with Narendra Modi. So I just wonder... Also there, I wonder actually if there's a difference for you in how you phrased the question, how you saw this between a strong leader and an autocratic leader. Are those the same thing? How did you parse those terms? Well, we didn't use the word autocratic in the in the question itself, because I think that's that's a word that, you know, might a lot of people might not quite be familiar with. So we use the term strong leader. You know, India is an interesting place in that, in that it's kind of an example of what we were talking about a moment ago and that, you know, you get pretty high levels of support for a variety of different kinds of governments. There are a lot of people who say, yes, I like representative democracy, but yes, I actually think that a strong leader model could be good too. And as you suggest, I think in any given country, you know, there are particular dynamics in that country, right? You know, if there, if there is a strong leader in place, that might be, you know, part of what people are thinking about when they answer that question. So, you know, in each country, you've got some different dynamics going on. But and nonetheless, if you step back from the particulars of a given country, I think you can see some pretty clear patterns across the globe and across all these countries that we had in the study. Chris Chermack with that report. You are listening to The Daily with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Elizabeth Braw and Vincent McAvenny. And it is now 149 days until the Olympic flame is lit in Paris and just a few days until the Olympic village is formally handed over to the city, which will be almost exactly a century after the first ever designated Olympic village was opened and also in Paris, fact fans. The Olympic athletes of 2024 will be housed in and around the Department of Seine-Saint-Denis, not hitherto regarded as one of the French capital's more glamorous neighbourhoods. The hope is, as the hope always is, that the investment will bequeath a worthy legacy long after the medals have been distributed. Um, Vincent, first of all, here in London we have a Mm. test case. It is 2012 that the Olympics were held Mm -hmm. here in Stratford, not far from where I live. Um, Have you knowingly since been to the Queen Elizabeth (laughs) Olympic Park? I have actually quite a few times, I've got to say, because I am also an East Londoner. Well, Um, all the best people are, Vincent. Yeah, very much so. Um, And actually, I was really glad this is on the list, because I've Got a real, I love an Olympics. I'm going to the Paris Olympics for a couple mm-hmm. of days with family. We've got some tickets. We're going to have a great time. What are you going to see? Um, the volleyball, the tennis, and the rugby. And the opening ceremony, because it's on the Seine, so it's open oh, to everyone. But you, so. you missed out on the sprint canoeing. 
Missed out on the sprint canoeing. I got massively yeah, into the sprint canoeing last time out. I mean, I, it's one of those things you do just go yeah. and watch on TV yeah. uh, that you get really into. But, uh, more serious point, I actually did a documentary in 2012 about Olympic uh, legacy. I worked on it, and it was about how cities can and can't transform themselves. And the model that every city wants to follow is Barcelona. Mm-hmm. So 1992 host, it was known before that as the city with its back to the sea. If anyone's been to Barcelona since, you know that it's a, you know, a great major European city, lots of art, lots of culture, but it's also got this this lovely beachfront um, that all was not there before the Olympics. It was industrial ground, uh, and the city decided to use the opportunity uh, to to reconnect with its coast. And so the Olympic Village was built along that stretch. That whole stretch was cleaned up. The the beach was cleaned up, and it's now a huge success story. And that's what every country that's hosted since has tried to do. What's interesting is Barcelona slightly got its Olympic venues wrong. It used a pre-existing venue on Montjuic, which is high up, and it built some other ones like the famous diving pool which Mm -hmm. had the amazing views now some of those though fell into disrepair and disuse because it was quite hard to get up to those but the success was the village now when it comes to london um the legacy is a bit more complicated they did build the olympic village which has become some of it was council housing some of it was sold off and it's all full occupancy the park itself it's been worked on for years and years it is pretty popular the problem happened once again with the stadium which was kind of in danger of becoming a white elephant uh, and then West Ham managed to buy it in a sort of sweetheart deal with the government for a very uh, small fee. So, you know, cities have learned watching successive one how to do this. What's been interesting with Paris is the venues were a lot of them pre-existing venues that they just upgraded. They mm-hmm. didn't want to build anything new. But it would be really fascinating to see whether or not this new Olympic village in Saint-Denis uh, is, is transformative because you know, my understanding of the banlieues, which are these sort of ghettoized neighborhoods that are around French cities, when I sort of studied them in the past, doing sort of French A level and stuff, um, was that they basically became dumping grounds. They then disconnected the transport routes, and that's why they were so ghettoized. Uh, um, and if they are now able to, with this Olympics, boost the transport to areas like Saint-Denis, where this new village is, uh, and interconnect them better, then it might stop that from happening once again and improve the city. So it is a big opportunity. But there was, sadly, trouble. I think uh, it was two summers ago, Liverpool were playing at the Stade de France, which mm-hmm. is quite near Saint-Denis. Uh, and there was problems uh, with people coming, as the report said, from the banlieue, uh, and they were attacking those that were in the crowd waiting to go into the stadium. And for Liverpool fans, given the history of Hillsborough, it all sort of became pretty disastrous the way that they were being packed into the stadium, then refused entry, uh, and then there were these attacks coming reportedly from people that had come from Saint-Denis. So there's a lot of work that that Paris has had to do to try and get ready for this Olympics. Um, But if they can alter the way the banlieues work, that'll be a pretty good legacy for them. Uh, Elizabeth, I I looked this up earlier. You could be living in a two-bedroom apartment in the Olympic Village at Stratford in London for about half a million quid. Are you tempted? Hmm. You know, I I like where I am. Although I won't, <laughs> I won't tell you where it is, but it's not it's not near there. Um, but would you be keen on living in a place like that, a sort of artificially constructed community which had been built for athletes and then turned over to the general public? 
Well, you know, there is something to be said for social engineering. Uh, and, and sometimes cities don't grow organically. You have to mm-hmm. interv- intervene, intervene and interfere as, as the government. And maybe the Olympics is the best possible uh, opportunity there is to, to interv- intervene in, in a city and, uh, and change it for the better, which, as Vincent said, clearly is possible as, as Barcelona has demonstrated. Well, finally then, many years ago, a Welsh farmer, wearied of being buzzed by Royal Air Force jets coming and going from a nearby airfield, climbed onto the roof of his barn and painted upon it the exasperated entreaty, piss off, Biggles, which naturally caused more problems than it solved as delighted pilots swooped low to photograph it. Biggles, incidentally, is a specifically British literary reference. The rest of you can look it up later, but seriously, it is very amusing. The animating sentiment appears is to be shared by people living close to US Air Force bases in Japan. Japan's government has settled lawsuits with deafened plaintiffs to the tune of 43 billion yen or circa 285 million dollars. The United States has not contributed a solitary bean. Um, Elizabeth, uh, first of all, where do your sympathies lie? I speak as somebody who I can kind of see it both ways. I can see the appeal of living next to an Air Force base in that I think give or take moral qualms people may have about what they're used for in some circumstances. Combat aircraft are nice things to look at, but they are quite loud. They are. And actually, I grew up uh, near an airfield as well. And I have to say, I quite like the sound. And, and you, you can follow the, the planes in the sky. And I think the the bolts have the most, uh, they have the right attitude when they hear fighter jets and they, they, they don't have their own fighter jets. What mm-hmm. they do have in the Baltic states is Baltic air policing, which is NATO member states, other NATO member states coming there to patrol their skies, which is really a, a, a lovely thing to do. The bolts call it uh, the sound of those fighter jets, the sound of freedom. And I think that is the attitude to have. (laughs) Um, Vincent, is is there a case the Japanese government could make along the lines of if the noise of aircraft bothers you this much, perhaps living next to an Air Force base Mm. is not for you? Yeah, potentially. I mean, we had a similar thing here in London a few years ago when there was uh, talk of a third runway at Heathrow uh, Mm. and many people living nearby, even though it is a huge employer in the local economy, were dead set against it and complained about the noise and everything else. And it's a bit like, well, it has been there for almost 100 years now. You kind of know what you're getting if you move around Heathrow for anyone moving into these areas. Um, But similar to you, I mean, I I grew up partially in Jersey, which a lot of traffic that goes across uh, the Atlantic routes over kind of Jersey and then kind of directs out where it goes, including my childhood memories are just constantly hearing the bang of Concorde <laughs> that was going into Paris because it wasn't allowed to go supersonic over French land. Indeed but the not. second it hit Jersey, boom, you would just hear it go. And it was a kind of, it was quite a cool thing back in the day. So, you know, it is a free air show. I was going to raise the point though that America has a little bit of a history of doing this. Currently in London... At the last reporting, which was September last year, they have an outstanding bill of (laughs) £14,643,495 because uh, they haven't paid the congestion charge since it was introduced in roughly 2005 because they say they should be exempt from any kind of local taxation like that under diplomatic rules. They are famously delinquent on parking fines as well, US diplomats. I think I read that wrong, sorry, £14,643,000. It's a, a hardy perennial of British journalism. 
optimism, that that mm. story. I, I did want to close by asking you each in turn, and I will ask you first, uh, Elizabeth, what actually is the noisiest place you have ever lived? Not the noisiest place in which you've ever tried to sleep, because I'm sure everybody's got a horror story like that. But thinking back on it, and for reasons I, I cannot comprehend, like how I managed to live there apparently quite happily for nearly a year, a, a house, a terrace house I lived in in Sydney next to an extremely ancient Ratley railway bridge. And this was on like a main commuter railway. So it was just a more or less constant um, din, which I somehow managed to tune out. I'm not sure I could do that now. Elizabeth, have you, have you been able to do that? Yes, I've lived next to a very busy bridge in London. And the thing is, the first few nights you say, well, how am I ever going to sleep here? And then you get used to it. And actually, it's quite nice hearing the, you know, the sound of the city. Vincent? I mean, university dorms come back to mind. That would, those could be pretty noisy. Um, I live on the river as it is now, so in East London, and so the the sound of the wind actually is the thing that kind of uh, gets me uh, most there. But yeah, it's you kind of get used to it, don't you? See, I, I'm not sure I could anymore. I I, I have grown ancient and grouchy. I, I like a quiet room. I, I, I sl- White noise machine? No, I, I, uh, I, 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 I sleep at the back of the house overlooking the garden in what is not necessarily the largest bedroom. But that can be bad in London because you get foxes in the garden. And actually, I, actually, they do I had make it. They do they make make the, yeah, I, had a, I lived in a house in North London where we had foxes in the garden. And the sounds of foxes mating is the most horrific sound you can ever <laughs> hear um, because of their barbed appendages. Um, yeah, listen on YouTube if you've never heard it before. It's awful. And on the phrase barbed appendages, uh, that is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our panellists, Vincent McAvenny and Elizabeth Braw. Thanks also to Chris Chermack for his report in the middle of the show, which was produced by Carlotta Ribello and researched by Neoma Ekwe. Our sound engineer was Sarah Nickel with editing assistance from Steph Chungu. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Listener.